Hi. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to October. Can you believe that already? Oh, man. I thought I was feeling old last month. It's already another month. Crazy, crazy. Hey, we're going to dive right into it again this morning because, again, this, we've got a passage of Scripture here that we're going to tackle that is, it is so deep, and we're going to be able to just really more or less brush over the top of it. And even at that, it's going to take us uh, some time. So I want to dive right in and get at it. Uh, today, we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And so we're going backwards a little bit. That's okay. We're going to tackle this now, and that's going to lead us right into chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, which we're going to go into next week. So that's where we're at this morning. And I hope that as we've been going through this series, that you've been reading Ephesians along for yourselves at home, that you've been going through the whole book, just checking it out. It's a short book. It's easy to tackle. So you can work it into your schedule relatively easily. But it's packed, absolutely packed, with foundational information for us. And so as we're doing some of the things at church, as we're hitting some of the the points at church, I hope that you're reading along and catching up on what we're not able to cover on Sunday mornings. So as we've seen, Ephesians gives us this summary, this overview, if you will, of God's purpose and his plan and the implications thereof for man. So that's what this book is all about. And we saw earlier that ultimately the culmination of God's plan is going to to be to bring everything under the submission and into complete harmony with Jesus Christ. That that's where this whole thing is headed. That's where creation and life is headed for all of us. And so for that to happen, two things have to be. Two things have to be, and indeed they have been resolved through Jesus Christ. First of all, is that God's relationship with man has to be reconciled because of our sin. So this relationship between God and man has to be reconciled. And Paul unpacked that for us more specifically in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, which Bruce covered two weeks ago. But the second thing, in order for everything to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, is that mankind has to be united. That that's the second thing that has to happen, to which now Paul is turning his attention in the latter half of chapter 2, specifically verses 11 to 22. So as Paul approaches this whole topic of unity, he does so by way of the alienation of the Gentiles in comparison to the Jewish people. All right? And so that's the way he's going to dive into this. He was writing to the Ephesians, to the Gentile uh, uh, believers in the church in Ephesus. And actually, there's considerable evidence that he was, this was more of a circular letter. It wasn't just to the Ephesians, but it was going out to a number of different churches. So 
Gentiles in all of this area, a much broader context, a much broader geographical range. Anyhow, he, he dives in here now, speaking now to the divide between the Jewish people and Gentiles. And there was a considerable divide between Gentiles and Jews. Like, as a matter of fact, like, I mean, there was no greater divide at the time. It would have been categorically, absolutely the number one divide in society as they knew it, in the world as they knew it. William Barclay tells us that the divide was so significant between Jews and Gentiles that the Jewish people passed a law saying that it was not allowed, you were not allowed to help, as a Jew, to help a Gentile woman give birth because that would result in nothing more than the birth of another Gentile. And so that was against their law. And what's more, Barclay points out that the Jewish people taught that the Gentiles were just fuel for the fires of hell. So that was their perspective, the Jewish perspective on the Gentiles. And so as Gentiles went through life, of course, well, this became very understood by them. And it, it was a gross distortion of God's original intent. A gross distortion. Rather than being a chosen light to the rest of the world for God, the Jewish people started to take God as their own. Instead of being a beacon of hope to the world around them and drawing other people to God, the Jewish people became exclusive. And they began to look down on anyone that wasn't within their ranks. So the children of Israel began to perceive themselves as God's select people. And as God, and, and God as exclusive only to them. So in verses 11 to 12 then, Paul summarizes this understood alienation of the Gentile people prior to Jesus. So let's pick it up in the first couple of verses, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you do want to have your Bibles with you, then follow along on the screens. It'll be right there for you. Therefore, Paul says, as he writes to his readers, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. So that was the Jewish people. They went through circumcision as a sign of their identity, as their chosen identity as God's people. And then Paul seems to throw a little bit of shade here. So he says, you were called uncircumcised by the, the ones that call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So Paul kind of takes a step back and he says, but this whole circumcision thing was done by human hands. It's done in the body. And it would seem to be that he's just kind of giving them a little bit of a shot there. Hey, Jewish people. Which is interesting, of course, because Paul himself was Jewish. So he has realized what he's about to talk about dwarfs this whole idea of circumcision. And he gives them just maybe a little bit of a tweak and says, hey, I'm writing to the Gentiles, but you Jews, you need to pay attention here too. 
So he carries on, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. And as he says Christ here, we need to hear him saying the Messiah. Oftentimes as Paul refers to Christ, he's talking about the Messiah within the Jewish context. So he says here that the Gentile people were separate from the Messiah. You guys didn't even have the hope of the Messiah. When he refers to Christ Jesus, then he's referring to Jesus oftentimes. Not always. It's not an exact rule, but it's a rule of thumb to follow. So as you're reading through Scripture, pay attention to the distinction that Paul makes oftentimes through that. So he says, remember, at that time you were separated from Christ the Messiah. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, the covenants that God had enacted with Abraham and David and so on. He said, you were outside of those, which means that then you were without hope and without God in the world. So in these two short verses, Paul makes his case for how distant the Gentiles are from God within the context of the day, within the context especially of the Jewish people. So he dives right in and reminds them of this alienation of their position. But then Paul pivots hard to the difference that Christ has made in verse 13. There he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. Paul says that from God's perspective that now you who are once far away, you that have sinned, you that have turned your back on God, you that have walked away from him, now you have been brought near by Christ. James 4.8 tells us to draw near to God and that he will draw near to you. And sometimes I think that we go through our life thinking that we have to do all the work. That we're the ones that have to extend ourselves. Well, if we draw near to God, then he'll draw near to us. As if God's sitting back there and waiting for us to make the first move. But here we find, in no uncertain terms, that Paul shows to us, demonstrates that in God's plan from the very beginning, through his son Jesus Christ, that he was going to reach out to us far before ever we turned away from him. He knew it was coming. He saw it coming. And he stepped into this whole effort with his plan through his son to draw us again to him. We never make the initiative to God. God always makes the initiative to us. Remember, again, what we were talking about last week, about mystery, as Paul talks about mystery, and that being a revealed truth to us. We can't find God. We can't approach God. We can't begin to know anything about God until he reveals himself to us. And so in verse 13, Paul tells us that though we were once far away, God has now drawn us near through Jesus. But that's not all. Paul expounds further than on Christ's accomplishment in verses 14 to 18. There he says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, again, the Jews and the Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of his hostility. As Paul refers to the dividing wall, there's some evidence 
that he is talking about a wall that was found in the temple. It was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles in the temple from the rest of the temple area where only the Jewish people could go. You go up a number of steps, about six or so steps, and there would be this one and a half meter high wall or thereabouts that ran all the way around the temple. And there would be then the opportunity for Jews to go beyond that further, up a few more steps up into the other courts in the temple and the temple itself. And, and around this dividing wall were signs, were inscriptions that said to the effect that if you go beyond, hey Gentiles, if you go beyond this wall, then you'll be responsible for your own death. Because any Gentiles that went beyond that would be executed. And so there was these signs spaced all the way around on this wall. Again, reminding the Gentiles that they weren't allowed. That they weren't good enough. That there was a division. That only the Jewish people, only God's people could go up into his temple. So the, the Gentiles could wander around and they could look up at the temple. And they could see that that was where God met with his people. But they couldn't go themselves. Apparently, if you go to the museum in Istanbul, you can see one of these signs. A couple of them have been found, and one of them is displayed there. And so there's considerable evidence that this is what Paul was talking about. Josephus actually talks about it in his histories, too, of the Jewish people. The two groups, he has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. One new humanity out of the two making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In Christ then, in Christ then, reconciliation overcomes alienation. In Christ, peace triumphs over hostility. And in Christ, unity triumphs over division. Because that's the way it is. That's the way God planned it. And we're going to come back to this in a minute. But for now, let's press on ahead. As Paul turns briefly to the implications of this now for the Gentiles. But in essence for all of us believers. Not just the Gentiles then, but for all of us now as believers. The implications are the same for us all. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone, Christ Jesus. Now, speaking very definitely of Jesus. Jesus as our cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now we have to take a look at this because this is monumental. Paul says that this new humanity, the church that Christ is establishing as he draws people to himself, pulls them out of death, pulls them out of every corner of creation, pulls them out of every tribe and every tongue, this new humanity that he is creating is unified in him. It's been brought together. There are no longer any divisions. We see here that as part of that new humanity, as you and I, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, as we enter into this new humanity then, that we are now fellow citizens. There are no divisions between us. But even more than that, even more than that, that God has now pulled us in beyond just the level of citizenship, but he has also now made us members of his household, which is to say part of his family. So we're not just citizens, but we're now brothers and sisters in Christ, unified as a part of his family, no longer divided, even familial, on familial terms, Second cousins twice removed. All one, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God himself. Therefore equal now in love and in standing before God. But beyond that, but beyond that, Paul continues, in Christ, together we are now effectively, you and I, together are effectively being built into a holy temple. A holy temple in which God himself now dwells. Can, can, can you see the significance of where Paul is going this morning? Here's what Christ has done. He's brought us together as one. We're united in him. We've been made fellow citizens. We've been made members of his family. And now, together, unified, we are the temple of God in our world today. Not just in our, this world today, but into heaven in the future. We're the place where God resides And note the contrast, if you will, that Paul has traced for the Jewish people. Because of, Je of Jesus, the Jewish people, and again, in fact, all believers have moved from aliens and outcasts of God to his children. That we have moved from being divided, that we're no longer divided, but that we are now 
unified and one people in Christ Jesus. And that we have been radically transitioned from being without hope and without God to being his dwelling place. In fact, where God himself resides. The transition really couldn't be more complete. The contrast couldn't be more sharp. The revolution couldn't be any bigger. What Christ has accomplished is crazy. Absolutely crazy. But with this picture in mind now, of the church, of this picture of this new humanity, this new one creation, fresh in our minds, and with what God has purposed in it, at this point, we have to stop and ask some questions. We have to stop and examine ourselves. Take stock of where we're at today as members of this body in relation to what God's calling us to as part of this body. How is it this morning that churches today, which is to say you and I, rather than being agents of reconciliation and peace and unity, are so often agents of alienation, conflict, and division. When we see this central purpose for the church as defined and as delegated by God to be bringing people together, in relationship with him first and then with one another thereafter. How can we be so often aliens, agents, I mean, of alienation and conflict and division? In so many different respects. It's sobering to me that God orchestrated it such that this message falls on this Weekend at the, at the end of this week of a focus on truth and reconciliation. I, I wasn't that smart to put this together. As a staff, we weren't that smart to put this together. We planned this way back months ago. And as we come up to it, then I look at this and I see this going on, and I have to stop and I have to ask myself, whoa, okay, God. What are you saying to us today? That you would bring it about that this wouldn't, would happen on this weekend. I don't think that that's an accident, coincidence. So as we contemplate truth and reconciliation, I think we need to take a sober look at ourselves. And once more, I'm not smart enough to say it better than John Stott. So I'm going to read for us, I'm going to quote John Stott at length this morning. 
as he looks at the church and offers us his assessment. And I need to say that this wasn't written lately. This wasn't written after Truth and Reconciliation Day came into being or place or vogue or whatever. This was written years ago. And unfortunately, I don't think much has changed. Stott says this, when we turn from the ideal portrayed in Scripture to the concrete realities experienced in the church today, it is a very different and very tragic story. For even in the church, there is often alienation, disunity, and discord. And Christians erect new barriers in place of the old, which Christ has demolished. Now a color bar. Now racism, nationalism, or tribalism. Now personal animosities engendered by pride, prejudice, jealousy, and the unforgiving spirit. Now a division, sorry, now a divisive system of caste or class. Now a clericalism which sunders clergy from laity as if they were separate breeds of human being. And now a denominationalism which turns churches into sects and contradicts the unity and universality of Christ's church. These things are doubly offensive. First, they are an offense to Jesus Christ. How dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human community in which he has destroyed them. To perpetuate, perpetuate these barriers in the church and even to tolerate them without taking any active steps to overcome them in order to demonstrate the unity of God's new society is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Christ and even try to undo it. What is offensive to Christ is offensive also, though in a different way, to the world. It hinders the world from believing in Jesus. God intends his people to be a visual model of the gospel, to demonstrate before people's eyes the good news of reconciliation. But what is the good of a gospel campaign if they do not produce gospel churches? It is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by his cross has abolished the old divisions and created a single humanity of love while at the same time we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship. I am not saying, Stott continues, that a church must be perfect before it can preach the gospel. But I am saying that it cannot preach the gospel while acquiescing in its imperfections. We need to get the failures of the church on our conscience. To feel the offense to Christ and the world which these failures are. To weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk. To repent of our readiness Readiness to excuse and even condone our failures. 
and to determine to do something about it. Stott sums up with this. I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is. A single new humanity. A model of human community. A family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other. And the evident dwelling place of God by his spirit. I'm with Stott. We need to be that church. FBC needs to be that church. All Christian churches need to be that church. But that only happens, that only happens as each of us commits to that as a priority for us individually. This morning we can't sit here and think about this in terms of everyone else around us. And if we do, we're missing the point. The fact is, there's something that each one of us, each one of us, can do to better help reconcile and build unity for others with God and with those around us. We're divided six ways from Sunday. And so all of us have to take stock and decide. What can I do and am I in on it? Where are you at today? Are you in on this? Will you make that commitment to go out and be ambassadors of reconciliation and peace in whatever way God leads you according to whatever his plan is for you in whatever circumstances you find yourself in this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, the rest of the days ahead of us. Not like Stott says, that we will be perfect, but that we would do our best to keep getting better. And as we talked about last week, we can do this by God's power. We can be a better church, better representatives of Jesus Christ by his power. Coming back to Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 18. It says, For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and is destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, that is in his body and death, 
the, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have both access to the Father by one spirit. Sorry, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. New Testament theologian Klein Snodgrass calls this section of scripture, these five verses, perhaps the most significant quote, perhaps the most significant ecclesiological text in the New Testament. In other words, that this is perhaps the most significant text on the doctrine of the church in the New Testament. If it is that foundational, if it's even considered that central to who we're to be as the church, then we have to pay attention. So with that in mind this morning, today as we come and we celebrate communion, Jesus tells us that communion is to be done in remembrance of him. So today as we celebrate it then, let's reflect on what Jesus Christ has done. Not just in his salvation. Not just in that gift that he's offered us. but also in his establishment of the church that he accomplished at the cross. And therefore then what he calls us to in that. And as we consider that this morning, then let's ask him for his help and power so that we can be a force for unity going forward, ambassadors of reconciliation to Christ and beyond. Gonna ask the servers if they would come forward. As we come to take communion, and maybe you're here and you've never seen this before, you have no idea what this is all about. That's awesome. First of all, thanks for being here. We're excited to have you with us. I'd encourage you to just watch and see, observe. Communion is for those of us that have, first of all, placed our faith in Jesus Christ, to come to that point in our lives where we believe in who Jesus is as God and that he came to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be reconciled to God. And the second thing that you need to know is that communion is for those that are unified. We talk about this month by month as we do communion, and maybe now this morning, maybe that's a little bit clearer for some of us, that why, that, why this is so important for Jesus, that we would be unified before we take and participate in this. Because this is what he came to establish through the cross, our unification as one body in him. So if you have a problem with a brother or sister, then get that solved, settled before you, you take and uh, participate in communion, at least to the best of your ability. Make sure that you've done everything that you can to reconcile that with them. I'm going to ask the servers if they would pass this out as they do, you can reflect on that passage of Scripture, what we're called to as the church. And then once everybody's been served, I'll pray and then we'll partake together. God, first of all, I would ask that you would forgive us for our failures.
to live up to your plan, your purpose in the church. Lord, for the fact that that's an offense to you and it's offensive also to the world around us as we prohibit them and inhibit them from finding faith in you, reconciliation with you as we allow that to be the case. Father, this morning we stop now and we do reflect back on what you've accomplished for us through your broken body and your shed blood the forgiveness of our sins, but also the establishment of this one new humanity of which you've called us to be a part. And we say thank you. Thank you that in your plan you've brought us near so that we can now draw near to you and you again draw near to us. I pray now, God, that as we remember that you would change us today by your spirit, that you would work in our hearts and minds, that this wouldn't just fall on deaf ears, that your word wouldn't return to you void, but that you would accomplish change in us so that we would better reflect to the world around us what you've intended for us. For I ask these things all now in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen. The wafer represents Christ's body broken for us. The juice represents his blood shed for us. This do, he says, in remembrance of him. Thanks for being here again, everybody. I hope that you enjoy the rest of this amazing day and some more great weather ahead of us this week, it sounds like. I look forward to seeing you on the Thanksgiving long weekend where we're going to tackle chapter 4. 